Uh, Sir Winston Churchill, you have heard his name. Uh, He led England through World War II, and while he was prime minister, he had to relate to many different nations. He had the French, who were um, part of his communication lines. He had to deal with them. He had to deal with us as Americans. Uh, He says the French and the Americans were very straightforward. He understood where we were coming, where the French were coming from. Obviously, he was opposed to Nazi Germany, Uh, But he always knew where Nazi Germany was, uh, where they stood on things. But the communists from Russia were frustrating to him. Uh, Churchill said this about the communists. He said, trying to maintain a good relationship with the communists is like wooing a crocodile. You do not know whether to tickle it under the chin or beat it over the head. (laughs) When it opens its mouth, you cannot tell whether it's trying to smile or preparing to eat you up. And then he said this, it is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. I mean, just a statement there. A riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. It's frustrating. Uh, There are things in life that are frustrating. So many layers to Churchill's statement, but that's how we experience certain aspects of life sometimes. It's a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. An enigma is something that's difficult to understand. There are many layers to it. And what we think should happen does not. Uh, sometimes it can be confusing to us. A person might be an enigma to you. They, they conduct themselves and all of a sudden you think you got them figured out where they're going with their plans and something just changes just like that. Um, Solomon's opening up chapter 8 for us and he is presenting us with three enigmas in life. Life is difficult for us to understand. There are unanswered questions, mysteries that are there. Um, and one of, the, one of the things that he's aiming to do with the book of Ecclesiastes is help us through life. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. A lot of times he packs short little sayings into his book here. And he's aiming to help us enjoy the life that God has given to us. But one of the things that robs us of enjoyment are these enigmas. What do I do in this situation or that situation? So what are the enigmas that we're studying? Well, I've presented them in the format of three questions that we'll have throughout the sermon. But I'll give them to you right now. And then we'll go back and start with enigma number one. Enigma number one is what am I supposed to do when those in government are difficult to obey? What am I supposed to do when wicked people get praised and let off the hook? And what am I supposed to do when I do good, but I get the punishment of the wicked? All right, so we'll look at those three in just a minute. But still, there's a key word that he is going to lead us along with. It's like the rope that we're holding on to and as he leads us through darkness. And here's one thing that you can hold on to in verse one. He says, who is like the wise? The key word here in verse one is going to be wisdom. Apart from God's wisdom, life remains an enigma. And so he asks the question, who is like the wise. It's, it's just kind of a statement, almost like a cultural statement. It's a rhetorical question. Kind of like you would ask, <clears throat> um, kind of going off the cuff here, uh, game yesterday, who is like Michigan State, right? No booze right now, please, okay? 
Who is like Michigan State? And of course, the answer would be, well, nobody. Just Michigan State is like Michigan State. So when he asks this question, who is like the wise, he's pulling our attention towards wisdom here. Wisdom is what distinguishes a certain group of people, wise people. And to keep our mind going, he asks another question. And who knows the interpretation of a thing? And he's sort of teasing us with only the wise can understand the interpretation of a thing. In fact, as you think about that phrase, in Solomon's mind, there was a key figure in Israel's history who was known for interpreting things, and he was a wise individual. Previous to Solomon, there was Joseph could do it, but Pharaoh was able to crack the code and understand Pharaoh's dream. Nobody else could do it, but, Pharaoh, or, but Joseph could because he had God's wisdom. What should, be, what should lead the thinking and decision-making and the attitudes of the people of God when we are facing enigmas is God's wisdom. Uh, not combativeness, not complaining. When we are frustrated with these enigmas in life, what we should be holding on to to lead us through those confusing sometimes dark times, is not my wisdom, not your wisdom, but God's wisdom. And notice what this wisdom causes us to do at the end of verse 1. It says, it causes our face to shine. A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Some people are very sour-faced about their circumstances. Some people live with a hard heart that's filled or growing with bitterness that is gnawing away at them from the inside out. But Solomon says, hey, there's a path forward. Wisdom can lift the sorrow face, sour face, and put joy there. It can lead you through times of bitterness and, and give you really a contentment and peace. So now we get into the enigmas. The first question again, what am I supposed to do when those in government are difficult to obey? Kind of really non-relevant for us, right? <clears throat> okay, verse two. Verse two. I say, Solomon says, keep the king's command. Keep the king's command. Now in verse three, we understand a little bit about this king. Notice what he says. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause for what does this king do? This king does whatever he pleases. We've studied a little bit about government in the book of Ecclesiastes back in chapter five. Solomon says, here's a frustration in life. You see somebody who's an official in government and they're making decisions for their own gain kind of swindlers, greedy, coming through the back door in conniving ways. And the thought is, well, you hope that somebody who is above him or her will hold them accountable. And Solomon says, it's kind of vain because the person that's above them, they're making decisions for their own self-pleasure as well. Nobody wants to blow the whistle because the ship of gain goes down for everybody. Now, again, he's speaking in terms of wisdom, generalities, Okay. So don't look at every politician this week and say, yeah, you're wrong, okay? But you understand what's going on here. Every leader at some point will disappoint you. Every leader will disappoint you because no leader is perfect. Your dad's going to disappoint you, kids. Your mom's going to disappoint you. Your boss will disappoint you. The government will disappoint you. And the temptation at that point 
is to grab the pitchforks and the torches and let the world know that you're angry and you mean business. And so out comes the gnarled face and the emotionally fired up heart. Frustrations begin spouting off. I would do it this way, not that way, but here's Solomon's wisdom. Keep the king's command. Keep the king's command. Now he gives us three reasons. He doesn't just leave us there, he gives us three reasons. The first reason is still found in verse two. Why should I keep the king's command? Number one is because of God, because of God. In verse two, in our ESV Bibles, it says keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Now Solomon was aware that God had made a promise that the line of David would rule over the nation of Israel. That was an oath. Solomon was aware of God's plan. That's one way of understanding that statement. Some of your versions might read a little differently. There's some questions about how the Hebrew is supposed to be translated. In verse two, it could also say, because of your oath to God. And some of you have a footnote that leads you down to the bottom of your Bible. So God's oath to him or your oath to God. And if it's your oath to God, Solomon has in mind that when a king is placed on the throne, God would expect the people to honor that king, to take an oath, yes, we will serve the king. Either case, what we're talking about is a high view of God where we believe that God is in control of all things and all people, including the placement of kings upon thrones. I mean, that's what Solomon is leading us along with, a high view of God. Is that consistent with scripture or is that just Nate's idea? Well, Daniel chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. And notice the next phrase. He's the one who does what? He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. You fast forward to Jesus' life. Think about this. The Son of God wrapped in human flesh coming into the world, being put on trial. He's standing before Pilate, who's going to order him to the cross. And what does Jesus say to him in John 19, verse 11? He says of Pilate, Jesus answered him and said, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Okay, do you see the big picture of God's sovereignty here? As Christians, we take the word of God for what it is. It's true. And so mysteriously, God is at work raising up kings, removing kings, raising up leaders, removing leaders. And Jesus could even look at the one who's going to order his death and say, you would have no authority unless my father had given it to you. Not only does God set up kings, but he has also ordained government to exist. Look at Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Okay, why? For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So just step back from this for a second. We're familiar with the institution of marriage. We see that God created marriage. Genesis chapter 2 brought the man, the woman together. This is good. God created marriage as an institution for the human race. Sometimes we think that government has just sort of been man's discovery, and it kind of worked, and so history of civilization just has a bunch of governments. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God has instituted, God has ordained government to exist. It provides at least some sense of order and structure for his creation. 
So the first reason why we should obey a frustrating government is because of our view of God. He is sovereign even over a corrupt government, and I'm not saying that about our government. I'm just saying when it's frustrating, it feels that way. This is an exercise of wisdom. People walk in wisdom when they obey their government. There's a second reason here, and that's found in verse five. Look at verse five where it says, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. The wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Second reason is just simply a reward for obedience. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. Again, Solomon is just pulling a proverb from life and placing it into his argument here. If you obey the king, typically you avoid punishment. That's what he's talking about. There's a third reason. It's found in verse 7. We'll move down through verse 6. For there is a time and a way for everything, although a man's trouble lies heavy on him. Verse 7. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? Basically, he's saying a, a person doesn't know the future. We don't know how things will turn out, so just obey. You might have a plan and try to hatch a plan, but you don't know if that plan is going to come to fruition. Verse 8, he says, no man has power to retain the spirit. That word spirit can mean breath or your own personal life. No man has the power to retain life or power over the day of his death. So disobedience in Solomon's day can result in your neck being tied to a noose. So since you don't have control over that, the king does, just obey. And so Solomon's point here is that for God's people, one of the enigmas is, I don't understand government. It doesn't seem logical to me. Who's making the decisions? All those kinds of questions well up inside of us. Here's wisdom. Obey the king's commands. Just obey the king's commands. Now some of you are asking, okay, you just mentioned church history, and I know in church history there wasn't always obedience to the government. When is it right to disobey government? Well, let's look at a few biblical examples. First one is from Exodus chapter 1, verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So Exodus 1, Pharaoh, a wicked ruler, he sees Israel, the Jews, populating, and this is a danger to his control. And so in order to gain or keep control, he says, we've got to practice like an infant genocide here. All the young male babies that are born have to be killed. Well, that's wrong. The Hebrew midwives who were called in for delivery would not murder the baby boys that Pharaoh wanted killed because of why? Verse 17 says they feared God. So out of obedience to God, they were led to disobey the government. Daniel chapter 6, another example. Um, a decree goes out. Nobody can pray. Nobody can bow down except to the king. So Daniel chapter 6, when Daniel knew that the document, the law of the Medes and Persians had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Here's another example of, if you will, civil disobedience. Um, he was going to be faithful in his relationship with God. 
That was obedience to God to be faithful there. And so out of his obedience, he disobeyed the government. Acts chapter five, verse 29, uh, Peter and John are told to keep their traps shut. Stop talking about Jesus. You're not allowed to do this around here. And so Peter and John, Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. All right, so I've given you just three examples. You could find more in scripture where disobedience happens, but the point of disobedience to government occurs when government calls you to disobey God. Okay, so I can remain in obedience to government as long as it does not call me to walk in disobedience to God. You obey authority insofar that you are specifically able to obey God. There are times throughout church history when Christians have had to disobey the government by going into the underground church and worshiping God because God has called us together to worship. Christians have been hiding Jews from murderers because God told us to preserve life. Christians have been smuggling Bibles and sharing the gospel in closed countries, which was and has been disobedience to governments because Jesus, whom all authority belongs to, commissioned us to do so. There are Christians who are believing in Jesus, converted to Christianity in strict Muslim countries, breaking the government because Jesus has commanded us to do so. And so there is this tension that can exist, but here's where you cut through the lines. You must obey God even if it means that you will disobey the governing authorities. Now, is that the, the mentality, though? Am I looking for any way to disobey the government and put a label of Christianity on it? See, that's where Christians sort of take their frustrations. I don't agree with what's going on politically, so let's see if I can just take a Christian principle and slap that label on my disobedience. Well, it's going to be a lot of times a matter of conscience. I mean, I don't think we can go through every example, but just beware that that's our tendency. You have to beware that you do not confuse political disagreement with Christian disobedience in the name of obedience to God, right? Beware that you do not confuse political disagreement with Christian disobedience to the law in the name of obedience to God. Let me give you an example. And it's kind of out, out there a little bit, but I hope the out there example gives you some handles here. Um, our state has a division that goes right down the middle, does it not? It splits people into two very different camps. There's Michigan State, green and white, versus Michigan, blue and maize. If the government throws out a new order tomorrow that says everyone must wear green shirts for Michigan State on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and blue shirts for Michigan on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, all of us would be like, that's so dumb. That's, that does not make sense. We'd all be shocked. We'd say, this is a crazy rule. We would say, those in authority are lacking wisdom. Okay, so they start making this rule goes through the legislative process, it gets challenged, and there is this big, long hoopla. And during the challenge process and all the litigation that takes place, you get politically active because you don't want this silly law to stand. 
Your opposition to the shirt proposal needs to be characterized by Christian virtue. Let your words and communication be driven by the spirit, not the flesh. Now next, if that becomes the law of the land, you have to ask yourself this question. Does this shirt rule violate my obedience to God? Do I agree with it? No, absolutely no, a thousand times. Does this shirt rule violate my obedience to God? And some of you are thinking about the categories in your mind. I'm glad you are. I can't answer all those categories, but these are the questions that have to be asked. And you will have to answer the question. Does this shirt rule violate my obedience to God? Well, none of us would like that rule. It would seem very illogical. It would be an enigma to us. But your political disagreement, even at that level, would not be cause for disobedience because it doesn't cause you to disobey God. Now, there are some rules that you would say, that causes me to disobey God. Okay, settle it in your conscience. Perhaps talk, perhaps talk to your pastors. Talk through it. Wisdom would have us walk in obedience unless that obedience leads us to disobedience with God. And Solomon's point is simply this. With all the frustrations, with all the enigmas, aim to have a spirit of obedience even when times are tough. It makes us long for the time, though, when all disappointments will be gone and God will reign perfectly over us. Let the frustrations of right now make you long for the eternal state. Let it make you long for a ruler who will come and who will rule his people with perfect wisdom and there will be no more frustrations about it. Revelation chapter five, verse 13 says, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And that's, that's what we have to do as Christians. Like so many times we wanna wrap our arms around the political disagreement and say it has to be my way. We're exiles here. As Christians, let that frustration just make you long for the rule and reign of God in the eternal state. So if the first characteristic of wisdom addresses our actions, here's the second characteristic of wisdom. It addresses our perspective. Here's the second enigma. What am I supposed to do when wicked people get praised and let off the hook? What am I supposed to do when wicked people get praised and let off the hook? Look at verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. Look at the wicked. They used to go in and out of the holy place. The holy place is the synagogues or the temples. They used to go in and out, so they're accepted there, and they were praised in the city where they had done such things. They had done such wicked things. So you get the picture here. This wicked person walks into a religious setting, and the religious setting puts their stamp of approval on their actions. And that person goes out and says, now I have the stamp of approval from the church from this holy place. And it gets even more frustrating down in verse 11. Look at what it says here. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of children of man is fully set to do evil. 
The justice system gets bogged down. People feel free to commit crimes because the verdict takes forever to come down. What are you supposed to do when people around you are acting wickedly? They get off the hook. Well, if they keep getting off the hook, here's one possibility. Maybe I should join them. I mean, that's the path of least resistance right now. Verse 12. Here comes Solomon's wisdom. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, okay, so he keeps getting away with things, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. Verse 13. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. So you've been out at night, the light has been behind you, it's pitch black, but that light is there, and you can kind of walk away from the light and your shadow gets longer and longer and longer. And so he's using that picture there, like you can adjust your shadow, and he says, the point is coming where you can't adjust your shadow anymore, wicked person. The day is coming where justice will be had. It will go well, however, for those who fear God. So when wicked people are getting praised and getting off the hook, the temptation, again, is to respond with frustration or just follow them. And young people, this is something that you have to settle in your mind. Whom do you fear? When we talk about fear, we're talking about revering God. We're talking about respecting him. We're we're not afraid or terrified by him. This is the kind of fear that causes you to want to draw in closer to God because he is so awesome to you. He's majestic to you. You're not running from him. If we find ourselves running from him, we're in a minefield of sinful consequences. Um, We've talked about that German shepherd dog when it comes to fear, right? Staying close to the dog, not running away from him. Here's another one just to give you a little perspective. Let's say there's a basketball coach and there's a player. This player really respects the basketball coach. The coach loves his players. This young guy really just wants to thrive in his relationship with the coach. If you skip practice, if this young man skips practice, he knows that he's going to be punished by running sprints. He also knows that he's going to disappoint the coach. But then there are a few friends over here that are having a great time and and they're going out and they're going to be partying this afternoon. And so a few friends are begging this young man, just skip practice for once and go hang out with us. And now that individual, that young man is in a decision-making mode. Whom does he fear most? Whom does he respect most? Whom does he want to draw in? Who is more majestic and awesome to him in that moment? And what Solomon is saying, you've got these authorities, you've got these rulers, you've got this culture out here, and you also have God. Whom do you fear? Whom are you drawing in most closely to? Whom are you trusting with your decision-making? Here's how Jesus instructed his disciples on how to fear God in Matthew chapter 10. Listen to the language that he said. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. What happens when sheep go into a pack of wolves? They get torn up. They are going to be hurt. Blood is going to flow. So he tells them, be wise as serpents 
and innocent as doves, but beware of men because you are gonna face a challenge. They will deliver you over to courts and they will flog you in their synagogues. There's the risk. You will live under authority that is bad, under a culture that is bad, and that can make life really bad for you, disciples. I'm sending you out, though. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Okay, so what am I going to do here? We move down to verse 26. Jesus says this, Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. He's appealing to God's justice. The idea is that the wicked will not get away with their actions. The justice of God will make all things right someday. Folks, the justice of God will make all things right someday. Don't fear them. So he continues on in verses 28 through 31. Rather, fear him, and he's talking about God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Even the little bird, even the hairs of your head are numbered. You're known by God. So fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. All right, young people, you are constantly at a fork in the road with decisions that have to be made. God has called you to follow him. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you've trusted Jesus as your savior, you have been called into God's family, but being called into God's family doesn't mean that life is just easy. Every day, you are faced with decisions as to whom you're going to fear, whom you're going to draw in closer to. Is it going to be the world? Or is it going to be God? And it's not just young people. Every day, we're going to work. And we're faced with this work culture where you're asking the question, am I going to be drawing more into the worldly, secular way of thinking? Or am I going to fear God? Who am I drawing closer to in my decision-making and in my thoughts? And Jesus says, you are sheep, you are being sent out, blood is going to fly, don't expect it to be comfortable, you must fear God. Draw in close to him. Not only does God control the eternal justice that will someday happen, but you have to realize in that moment, God cares for me. He cares for me right now, so I'm going to walk in obedience to him. I fear him. He's my coach, so to say, earlier with that illustration. He's the one whom I want to please. Now, some of you might be in a tough situation right now where you're having to make a decision about life. And it just goes back to whom will you respect more? What will you respect more? Wisdom is this, respect God, fear him. There's one more characteristic to this wisdom. There's one more enigma, we could say, and that's found in verse 15. Here's the enigma. What am I supposed to do when I do good, but I get the punishment of the wicked? What am I supposed to do when I do good, like I'm doing the right thing, but I get the punishment of the wicked? Well, verse 14. There's a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people, they're walking in obedience to God, Righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I say this also is vanity. Here's this point. From a human perspective, life is not fair. There are so many things that are just twisted and backwards. 
you do the right thing as a spouse, but the ex keeps getting ahead and you're left behind. You do the right thing as a parent, you keep walking in obedience to the Lord, but the rebellious child keeps stepping on your heart over and over and over again. You do the right thing as a Christian, but the sinful person in your life at work just keeps getting ahead and almost like using your work and taking the benefit from it, and then their mess is left in your lap. So what are you going to do? You can focus on your circumstances or you can focus on God and what he has given you. And here's what Solomon says is the answer to this enigma in verse 15. Enjoy life. It's kind of funny how he brings it up. I commend joy right now. All right, so life is frustrating. These wicked people, they keep getting ahead. I commend joy to you. This is what you need to do. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Now, this sounds very counterintuitive. When circumstances are challenging due to injustice in my life, is there a path forward for me to be joyful? Even if I can't fix the circumstances, can I still be joyful? And Solomon says, I commend joy because God gives you the means to have joy even when your circumstances are messed up. Here's how one author described it or writes it. It's kind of a pithy way of saying it. What should a man do in a world of powerful kings and wicked men who look as though they got away with it? He should prepare to make merry. You're not expecting that. You're expecting fight back. You're expecting something other than find some joy. But Solomon says, hey, you can still break out the food and drinks. God has still given you food to fill your mouth and your stomach and to quench your thirst. Even when life's circumstances are going terrible in this area of life, you can still sit down at the table and enjoy what God has given you. So maybe think of it this way. World War II prisoner in a concentration camp. Circumstances around him are terrible. He's been treated unjustly, no doubt about it. Yet once a day, a piece of bread and a small bowl of soup and a cup of water is given to him. And yet, this bread that came from wheat in the field, here it is. It's been ground down to flour. A little water's been added to it. It's been baked. And now he has a slice of bread that he can taste He's got a bowl of soup in his hands with some chunks of potato and some strong onions that he can taste. And once a day, his circumstances are rotten 99% of the day. Once a day, he's brought over to this table and he takes that piece of bread and he goes, this is good. This is from the hand of God. This potato in this soup God grew it in the earth and this onion grown in the earth and it's been put into this broth and right now I can have joy because God has given me something, even in the worst of circumstances. And some of you understand this. You haven't been to a concentration camp, but life has been somewhat of a concentration camp. You go through these trials and most of your circumstances are unfit. They're unjust. They're the fallout of the wicked. But there are these little glimpses, these outpourings of joy that God can give to you, the simple means of food. 
And, and many times, if we're not careful, we can be like a prisoner in a camp who has served this food, and out of anger and frustration, we knock the table over and say, life is so unfair. There's nothing good going on right now. And here's the heavenly hand of our Father just reaching down saying, I, I am giving you things. I know circumstances stink right now. I know the wicked are prospering. I know life is an enigma, but have you missed the gifts that I'm giving to you right now? I'm for you right in this moment. So the next time you peel a banana back and you think, my body needs potassium leveled out in every way, you can think, here's the hand of God that has made that banana grow, and here comes Thanksgiving here pretty soon, and maybe some of you are going to have pumpkin and apple pies. I mean, just think about those apple pies for a second. Those apples came from a seed that's about a third of the size of your pinky fingernail. Planted a tree, that tree grew up, that seed had so much DNA in it, just so much computerized knowledge that God put in there to grow that tree, and here comes 300 apples every year from that one little seed. And you grab an apple and you pop it in your mouth and the skin cracks and then there's that white flesh inside that's sweet and somebody starts dicing them in the kitchen and here comes apple pie. Little gift of God, I commend you to joy. Enjoy the apple pie and the pumpkin pie. And some of you enjoy fishing a lot. Here's God's creation. Day five, birds and fish. There's that salmon that came from an egg up in the river. Mom died. Here comes this salmon swimming down the stream, out into the lake, and there you are to catch it two to three days later. And you enjoy that filet, and then you put some spices on it that were grown from God's earth, and you just enjoy the mouth-watering flavors. Don't forget the ice cream afterwards came from the milk, Okay. Well, what's happening in Washington, D.C. right now? Bah. What's happening in Lansing right now? Bah. Local school board, city council, bah. I commend you to joy. That's what Solomon is saying here when life is unfair. Enjoy the leafy salad, the baked croutons. Enjoy the fire in the fireplace. Sit down with a pizza and enjoy the tomato sauce. God has given us so many things to enjoy and we're missing it. Like, that's what Solomon is saying. I commend you to this. But don't let your food of enjoyment stop there, right? Does God have a purpose? Yes, nourishes us with our food, uh, with our bodies. But let it go one step further this season. Let your physical food remind you of your spiritual food. Remember the analogy that Jesus gave, John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We're all starving. That's where it is. Our hearts are starving for something. Yeah, enjoy the good things that God has given to you, but without the true bread and without the true water, we can't be fulfilled. We can't have that, oh, I'm full and satisfied. And here's where this relationship with God opens up and develops where, yes, my spiritual hunger can be satisfied in Christ. My spiritual thirst can be satisfied in Christ. So are you here this morning just thirsty? 
Are you here hungry, like I'm lacking satisfaction? Jesus says, keep coming to me. Keep coming to me. And this week, it means like get into his word and just feed yourself on his word. Keep coming to him in prayer, pouring out your heart to him. Maybe you haven't come to him at all yet. Maybe you've got that hunger that's inside. Jesus says, man, if you're hungry, come to me. He begins a new life in us. A life where our sins are forgiven. A life in a relationship with our heavenly father. And you receive that life through faith. Simply through faith. Not through works, but through faith. We have a lot of enigmas that we face. We keep coming back to the word of God. Here's the wisdom. We enjoy life. We fear God. We obey the government insofar that we obey God. Here's God's wisdom for us. And I'm sure as we apply it, it will guide us through another week. So let's pray.